Hi, listeners. We wanted to give you a warning before we get started. Today's episode deals with gun violence and other upsetting content. Listener discretion is advised. On Tuesday, May 24th, America experienced yet another horrible mass shooting. A gunman in Uvalde, Texas, massacred 19 students and two teachers at Robb Elementary School. Police say 18-year-old Salvador Ramos opened fire with an AR-15-style assault rifle in a fourth-grade classroom before police killed him to end the rampage. It is the deadliest school shooting since the one at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut in December 2012. The violence in Texas still shocks, but it doesn't feel new. As in the Newtown massacre, the alleged gunman in Texas shot a family member before attacking children at the school. Ten days before the slayings in Texas, another 18-year-old killed 10 people in Buffalo in what authorities say was a racist attack on blacks in a grocery store. He used a firearm similar to the one used in Texas. The political response to these attacks seemed more combative more quickly in another sign of America's all-too-familiar political stalemate over gun violence. Polling shows large majorities of Americans favor at least some greater restrictions on access to firearms, yet the issue is scarcely discussed on Capitol Hill. At the state level, it's a different story. Welcome to The Gaggle a politics podcast by the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. I'm your host, Ron Hansen. Today I'm speaking with a Republic reporter on the scene for his second mass shooting in Texas and with a UCLA professor about how lawmakers react, or don't, to these tragedies. Let's begin with Republic reporter Rafael Carranza, who has been in Nivalde since the shootings. Rafael, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. You flew to Texas the morning after the shooting. You were also in El Paso after a 2019 shooting at a Walmart there that resulted in 23 deaths. What do you experience at places like this that you think people who aren't on hand for these things may not be feeling? One of the hardest things to convey is just the utter devastation that communities like El Paso and like Uvalde feel after tragedies like these, which have impacted so many lives. And that's especially true in a place like Uvalde. This is a very small town and something that we hear from residents is that everybody knows everyone. And so even if people didn't know the children or the teachers themselves, they may know who the parents are or who the grandparents are. And so in that sense, there is this massive outpouring of grief and this feeling of helplessness. A lot of questions have come up over, you know, what could have been done to prevent this or why it happened in the first place. And we may not get answers to those, but we certainly, you know, heard those questions being asked early on and expect that, you know, they'll continue to seek answers in the days and weeks to come. But something else that we've also noticed and that is also hard to, to, to portray is, you know, just the level of support from the community and how they're able to rally around each other. And it's almost immediate. We saw that, you know, play out in El Paso, certainly here in Ovalde. Almost immediately you had blood drives and, you know, people helping out, whether, you know, doing prayer services.
buses, vigils, uh, handing out food or organizing car washes to raise money for the victims and their families. There's just a, a lot of uh, commitment, um, you know, to help each other out. And that's, you know, something that we expect that the community, you know, will will continue doing here in Uvalde, you know, relying on each other to try to, you know, get through all this devastation and this tragedy. What stands out to you now from people you've talked to in Uvalde? Well, as is often the case with many of these tragedies, which have become all too common now, um, there's initially a lot of shock and, you know, some people may feel numb over what happened and, you know, such a massive loss of life. But as that shock begins to subside, all these other emotions start to flourish. And one of the strongest ones that we've noticed here in Uvalde is a lot of anger at the response from law enforcement. There's still a lot of questions over, you know, how long it took police officers on the ground to intervene and to take action to stop the gunman after he entered the school. Uh, you know, we heard from investigators that they waited in the hallway approximately an hour before they, you know, breached the doors to try to engage the shooter. And during that time, you had students who were inside dialing 911, pleading, you know, with police to, to do something and to take action. And so that has really reverberated with the entire community, especially with the parents we heard from, you know, a lot of, you know, the, the parents who, as soon as they heard about something happening at Rob Elementary, they showed up only to have police kind of stop them on the outside and, and stopping them from trying to go inside and get their children. And so there's a lot of anger over that as well. I spoke to one of the parents, his name is Mario Jimenez. He has a fourth grader at Rob Elementary and he talked about, he described the scene, you know, outside the school when he got there and, you know, he was met with police and uh, kind of like, you know, trying to decide what what to do over the, over the course of the next few uh, moments to, to try to do something about that, about the shooting. The El Paso massacre is considered a hate crime against Latinos by a shooter believed to have written a white nationalist manifesto. The events in Uvalde are still developing, but how do you compare the way these communities have reacted in these two attacks? Well, there are some similarities in, you know, the number of casualties in, in the shootings, but, um, you know, there are some very stark differences. Uh, and the main one is that, you know, in Ovalde, you are talking about children. Most of the kids who died are 10 or 11 years old. And so, you know, that just creates a whole different level of grief and devastation you know, because their lives were were cut so short, um, and um, you know, you also have you know differences in, in in the scope in a way of of the tragedy. Even though you do have a similar number of deaths, um, El Paso was very unique because it had an impact on a binational you know border community uh, with about three million people in the metro area on both sides of the border. Whereas you know Ovalde is this tiny town, approximately sixteen thousand people, as I mentioned. Everybody knows each other. And so the lives that are impacted are just uh, that sense of impact is just a, you feel it a lot more in a place like Uvalde than you do in El Paso, even though both communities, you know, are obviously, you know, left to grieve in this, you know, very tragic way. A few hours after the shooting in El Paso, a gunman in Dayton, Ohio, killed nine people, including his sister. This time, 10 days before Uvalde, we had a mass shooting in Buffalo that killed 10 people. 
Do people in Evalde want or expect changes to prevent these kinds of attacks from happening again? You know, there's a lot of debate about this happening. Uh, you know, we've heard all sorts of responses. Initially, a lot of the people were talking about, you know, not wanting to see this issue politicized. That's something that we also heard from elected leaders, you know, like Texas Governor uh, Greg Abbott, who really, when asked, you know, to address questions about gun reform and gun laws, really trying to evade that, saying that the focus was on the community and he didn't want to politicize this issue. But it, it is very political. And, and that's something that, you know, we have seen, you know, in talking to a lot of the people here, they do expect some sort of change. I mean, these are the lives of, of children that were cut short over, uh, you know, this 18 year old who was able to legally buy assault rifles immediately after he turned 18. And so there's a lot of questions over, you know, how, you know, someone who just turns 18 is able to get these types of weapons that can cause so much damage, but at the same time, you know, they're not able to buy, for example, beer or alcohol. And so we have, you know, heard from, from people talking about, you know, whether it's changes to, you know, in age restrictions uh, when people can buy guns or, you know, a ban on assault rifles, but that has kind of emerged as two of the key items that a lot of the people here in Uvalde are talking about as the either the governor or the president wanting to really take strong action on to prevent tragedies and to prevent you know other cities and, and towns to go through what Uvalde is going through at the moment. Rafael, thanks so much for taking time out of your day to talk with us. Where can people stay up to date on what you're experiencing there? Uh, people can find me on Twitter at Rafael Carranza. That's C-A-R-R-A-N-Z-A. Thank you. We're now joined by UCLA professor Christopher Poliquin, Along with two others, Dr. Poliquin examined gun legislation passed between 1989 and 2014 in a study published in the Journal of Public Economics. The idea was to compare what happens legislatively following mass shootings. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So Americans have come to expect that Congress will bicker for a few days, but usually take no action after mass shootings that are so familiar to us and extremely rare in most other industrialized nations. First, is that true at the federal level? And second, how is it different in the states? Yeah, well, you know, it has largely been true at the federal level that we've seen a lot of inaction from Congress following mass shootings. And, you know, I think naturally after these kind of big events that are seen as kind of nationwide tragedies, people's attention turns to Congress. And yet Congress is not where a lot of action on gun legislation actually happens, both kind of in normal, normal times and after these events. And so we really wanted to dive into this question of how gun legislation changes at the state level after mass shootings, given that that is where uh, guns in, in the United States are largely regulated. And so we looked at changes in bill introductions and laws uh, following mass shootings at the state level and find, you know, contrary to this view that nothing really happens, in fact, there are large increases in bill introductions following mass shootings. 
Um, and there's also some changes in, in the laws that get enacted as well. Okay, let's talk about that a bit. Some states have responded by expanding gun access. Where has that happened and how has that worked out? Yeah, indeed. When we look at what laws actually get enacted after mass shootings, we find that politics matters a lot. So Republican states tend to loosen restrictions on firearms after mass shootings. And we examine Democrat-controlled states as well. And there we find um, there are anecdotal examples of Democratic-controlled states responding, but no statistically significant increase in the number of laws regulating firearms. And so most of the action, at least in response to mass shootings, seems to be on the Republican side, loosening restrictions on guns. Are there any kind of objective markers of success or failure of any of these laws in achieving what, greater access to the firearms and belief that it will prevent future such violence? Does it even have any kind of attachment to that for the democratic states? Is there any demonstrated effect of any of the steps they've taken to the extent they've done anything um, to make their states safer? Well, it's really important when you're thinking about the kind of downstream effects of changes in gun policy to distinguish between mass shootings that get so much attention and kind of the ordinary, you know, daily drumbeat of gun violence in the United States. Because mass shootings, um, honestly, are only about 1% of gun deaths in the US, despite getting so much attention. And that fact that they're pretty statistically rare makes them hard to study. And so we actually do not have great evidence either way on you know, whether expanding access to firearms or whether some of the laws that have made it harder to get firearms and ammunition have really affected mass shootings. We have much better evidence on the kind of policies that would affect ordinary gun deaths. And there, things like requiring permits, universal background checks, safe storage laws uh, have been shown to be effective in reducing gun homicides and suicides. There are far more cases, as you've just noted, of shootings involving fewer victims, domestic violence, for example, uh, suicides. From an academic perspective, are there legislative steps that have been viewed as especially impactful on behavior? Um, with ordinary gun violence, it's certainly the case that you know, gun safety initiatives, getting people to store their firearms more safely, more carefully, uh, leads to reductions in deaths, especially kind of accidental deaths of children. Things like requiring permits to either own or purchase uh, firearms have been shown to lead to reductions in homicides and suicides. One of the reasons for that is uh, these permitting laws typically result in more extensive background checks than the kind of instant check that you would get from the FBI. Uh, and also, delay receipt of the firearm. So, you know, in Massachusetts, for example, it takes about 30 days to get a license to um, possess a handgun. And those 30 days, you know, might allow people to kind of cool down if they're trying to buy guns for kind of these emotional reasons, whether they want to kind of shoot, you know, family members, domestic violence, or kind of engage in sort of more public violence. And, and so these permitting policies have been shown to be to be effective. There's also, by the way, some evidence that certain policies to loosen restrictions on guns are not effective. So stand your ground laws, for example, have been expanded a lot in the past decade. I believe there's about 19 states now that have these stand your ground laws allowing people to, to shoot others in self-defense. And there's some pretty strong evidence that that leads to an increase in homicides. 
How about other gun rights laws, uh, things like liberalization of concealed weapons permitting and such? Have those had any measurable impact on the broader use of firearms in an unlawful way? Yeah, so the the research on this is kind of more contested, more controversial, but you know, I would say the bulk of the evidence here shows that liberalizing concealed carry laws uh, has not resulted in kind of reductions in crime. Um, so one of the motives for these laws is that, well, if people can carry concealed weapons, they can kind of protect themselves, they can protect their communities. Uh, and criminals will think twice, right, before kind of engaging in crime if they think there's somebody in public who can stop them with a gun. And the research on that doesn't really show those laws to to reduce crime. And in fact, there's some evidence that laws that make it easier to carry concealed weapons uh, increase gun violence. Now, I think wh- where the trend has been kind of more recently on these laws has been letting people carry these firearms without any permits at all. Um, and I would say that we don't have a ton of research on these more recent liberalizations of concealed carry laws. Um, most of the research so far had been on kind of the shift in permitting policies in the 90s from what was called the May issue approach, where sheriffs and law enforcement have discretion on whether to let you carry a concealed weapon to a shall issue regime where they're required to let you carry a concealed weapon. They're required to issue the permit if you meet certain criteria. And so most of the research on that has shown those laws to kind of not then it be those shall issue laws to not be effective in reducing crime. Um, There's less research on kind of the more recent trends in in letting anybody carry a concealed weapon without a permit. Where have the most impactful laws been passed and why there? And what I'm getting at, is it just the political composition of the legislatures or is there a social demography component that suggested success was always more possible in some places more than others? Do we have any kind of real sense of why any particular law might work or not? Yeah. So certainly one of the striking facts about gun policy in the United States is the huge divide in uh, blue states and red states. So you might think that you know the states as kind of a laboratory of democracy would sort of try lots of different policies. We figure out what works, and then we kind of converge right on these best practices. That's not what happens with with gun policy. Uh, in fact, what we see is a huge divergence between blue states and red states in their approach to regulating firearms. And some of that, I think, as you're alluding to, is sort of the politics of gun control in the United States, where Democrats typically favor more restrictions on firearms, Republicans uh, favor looser restrictions. But also, you know, as you're kind of hinting at, maybe sort of social demography kind of as well, where gun owners favor less restrictions on firearms, right? In certain states, especially, you know, redder states and more rural states, tend to have uh, a larger share of households that own guns. Um, And so they're going to be more resistant in those places to putting restrictions on firearms than states where very small percentages of the population are actually gun owners. We have to ask about Arizona. We're familiar with our legislature and our Western traditions uh, here in this Western state. How does Arizona stack up as, in terms of gun-related violence and legislation uh, pursued and enacted? 
Arizona has fairly liberal, I mean, I should say fairly unrestrictive policies when it comes to using firearms, right? So allowing people to kind of uh, use these weapons, carry them, um, does not have an assault weapons ban, right? Does not require a permit to purchase or possess a handgun. Um, and so it's certainly an example of a state that has kind of made it easier over time to own and, and use firearms. Now, I think Arizona is kind of also an in- interesting sort of politically, right? Because, you know, Senator Mark Kelly is an example of somebody who has, you know, made gun policy an issue uh, and made gun policy an issue in part response in response to mass shootings, right? Especially the 2011 Tucson shooting of, of his wife, Gabby Giffords. Um, and so I think Arizona, while you're right, it kind of embodies a lot of these Western traditions and expanding access to firearms. It's also a state where we've seen after mass shootings, kind of the galvanizing um, effect of these these events and potentially pushing for greater restrictions on firearms. The most recent spasms of violence have come pretty late in the legislative calendar and also in an election year. How does that impact the likelihood of any legislative response at any level at this point? So certainly in Congress, um, I would not be optimistic that we're going to see big, bold changes in federal gun policy. You know, we've kind of been here before already after lots of mass shootings and nothing has happened. And so I don't know that this shooting in Uvalde is going to really be much different than the response after Sandy Hook, um, where the Manchin-Toomey background check bill you know, failed by, I think, about six votes in the, in the Senate. Um, I don't really see reasons why Republican senators this time would cross the aisle and kind of enact new restrictions on, on firearms. Certainly, they put themselves at risk politically if they do so. Um, if you look at the states that have, for example, permit requirements for purchasing handguns, assault weapon bans, most of those states are, one, represented by Democrats in, in Congress, but also have democratically controlled legislatures. You don't see states that are Republican controlled with assault weapons bans, for example. And so a Republican senator who kind of wants to think about voting for those policies would be out of step with policy in their home state, likely out of step with the views of a lot of their constituents. Is there any indication that politically that is an issue on which uh, voters will make changes? It's certainly uh, research on patterns of voting for gun owners, non, non-gun owners suggests that gun owners are just much more active politically on the issue of gun control. And so they think about it a lot more when they're voting. They're more likely to write their senators about it. Uh, they have personal a personal stake in the way we resolve questions about gun policy in the United States in a way that supporters of gun control who haven't been personally affected by gun violence uh, simply don't. And so when it comes to voting and when it comes to voting in primaries, we ought to expect that gun owners and people who support looser restrictions on firearms to kind of be much more knowledgeable about what candidates' preferred policies are and vote uh, specifically on the issue of gun control in a way that a lot of supporters of increased restrictions uh, won't. Okay. Well, thank you, Chris, for joining us today. If people want to follow you or your work on Twitter or elsewhere, where can they find you? I am uh, social media free, uh, and so I, I don't use any social media. Um, kind of 
If people are interested in reading the journal article from the Journal of Public Economics, it's open access, so anybody can download that. Uh, you just Google the, the impact of mass shootings on gun policy, uh, and you'll find that paper. Um, and then you could always follow the UCLA Anderson Twitter account, um, which can, will kind of tweet out my work uh, when, it's, when it's relevant. Very good. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate your time. <laughs> Thank you for having me. That is it for today, Gaggle listeners. While we still have you, please don't forget to rate and review our show and share it with a friend. If you want to reach out to me on Twitter, I'm at Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H-A-N-S-E-N. Today's episode was edited and produced by Amanda Luberto. She's on Twitter at Amanda Luberto, L-U-B-E-R-T-O. And listeners, we're looking to hear from you too. As we head into the 2022 primaries, we want to know what issues, topics, and questions are on your mind. You can send us a note or a voice memo via email to thegaggle at azcentral.com. We look forward to hearing about the issues that matter to you. Thanks so much for listening. Also, be sure to check out our other podcasts such as Valley 101 and The Lab. Find them wherever you get this podcast. For The Gaggle, I'm Ron Hansen. We'll see you next week.